morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. Hope you've had a good weekend. <clears throat> um, I don't know how many of you still get letters. Does anyone still write letters or get letters? I don't, actually. Oh, there's one. Good. But I do remember when I was at university um, in the late 80s, it, must, it was just before email all started to take off, and I remember the excitement of running down the stairs to the... We all had our little pigeonholes in a, a sort of cupboard place that all the letters appeared, and nothing gave me more excitement than to receive a letter from a friend or from my mom or my dad or somebody like that. Um, and I, I was quite a prolific letter writer too, but it, so I don't know how that's all changed. I suppose um, Ken's been talking about Facebook and our communications may be a lot shorter and a lot more frequent. But uh, letter writing was something that was really, um, I was really enthused about. And I remember too being at home and sometimes if a letter arrived, we'd sit around the table and read it out together. And I remember my mum saying when I wrote letters back to the rest of my family, because I was the first one to leave, that they would read it all out and then she'd maybe take it off and go and read it again herself or my dad would take it and read it. And those are the kind of thoughts I have in my mind when I think about Paul writing a letter to the believers at Ephesus. There wasn't any social media at that stage. How, how it got delivered, I don't really know. You know, how it traveled all those miles and arrived in the hands of the intended recipients. Clearly it did, but it's a bit of a mystery how it actually did. But I can imagine them sitting there. This must have been a little scroll or something like that, and they probably all came together. They probably had something to eat, and, and somebody got the job of, of reading it out, of just sitting down and, and reading from this, um, this father in the faith figure who was... He was in chains somewhere else. They knew that he was suffering, but they knew that he was still enthused and excited about the message that he was proclaiming. So they read it out together and they all listened and no doubt there was some sort of a rota afterwards for people to take it away and look at it themselves. And, and so something grew up around this letter. So those are the thoughts that I have in my mind as Paul wrote to the new believers in Ephesus. This fledgling church with a capital C the church that actually we're still part of right here and right now today, all these, all these years later. So we're coming to the end of our journey through the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians then. And as I took time to read it right through, because again, it's, maybe it's because it's not such a long one, but it's great to read these things from beginning to end, because that's how they were intended to be read originally. So reading it through, and even I have on my um, Bible app on my phone, somebody can actually read it to me, so I can actually sit back and listen to it being read. So doing those things just tends for me to spark different things. I think God reveals different things in the, in the full context of reading it and of listening it to. And as I read it, I've, I sensed there were two broad sections to it, the first three chapters and the second three. And the first, the first three was really a reminder to the original recipients, but also to us, of what we know about God, all the things that we know about Him. And the second half then, that was a bit more about our response. So knowing, being reminded of what we know in that first part, what should our response to that be? What do we do as a result of that? What do we do for God, knowing what we know about Him? And what was clear to you was just how inextricably linked those two things are. What we know about God, 
and what we do inextricably linked. We can't say that we know God if we don't do anything for him. That just, as I read that, that, that isn't an option. What we know about God moves us into activity and action to do something for him. So I guess I find that both exciting and challenging. It was exciting because there's always something more to find out. There's always something further I can discover about God. I've been a Christian since single-digit figures in age, which is, which is getting to be quite a long time. But I still realize there's things as I take time to read there, there's more that I can find out about the character of God. There's more that I can find out about what he wants to do in me. And that's exciting. Having that predisposition of always wanting to learn something else. Never being satisfied with, you know, I've, I've, I've read it all those many times, I must know enough by now. But having an enthusiasm and an excitement to find out what else can I learn. But it's challenging too because that idea of what I know about God and what I do for him and, and the fact that it is so inextricably linked, I can see certainly in my life how it gets fractured so easily. How certain situations I know I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. I'm not taking the knowledge that I have of God and applying it in the way that I know I should. So that, that equal area of, uh, of challenge and of excitement, and I guess that's just part of our journey of life, isn't it? But I think it's really important to be aware of that, because it'd be quite easy for those two things. If we're not intentional, we, or those things can just drift apart. So the recurring theme, as far as our knowledge of God goes, seems to be this word, plan. I don't know if you've taken time to, to read through it, but it, the word plan appears quite a lot in those first three chapters. So in chapter one, it says this, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. That's, that's talking about God's overarching sovereign plan that actually started before human history began. He's got this plan. He's always had this plan. This plan is there, and that is the plan that he is completely, utterly, 100% in control of. And that brings a real sense of comfort to you, doesn't it? And a real sense of perspective. That's what it's all about. It's that plan that he's got in mind. The second, bit, the second part of plan then is, is the, the uniting of the Jews and Gentiles. So it, the, the Old Testament in our Bible is all about the history of the Jews. It's the mysterious choice of that nation to be God's um, communication, if you like, to everybody else. But then the plan suddenly gets blown wide open. So it's not just the Jews who are the recipients of the good news. It's open for everybody. And that's what it says in chapter 3 and verse 6. Again, it uses this term, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe in the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus Christ, the focal point. We know he's the focal point in human history, but here again, a summary of why that is. The bringing together of, of God's chosen race, the Jews, and everybody else, 
the Gentiles was the term used for that then. They are as one. That was part of the plan too. And God's plan is individual and personal, which is so exciting to think, you know, there's this big overarching plan that in some ways is, is so big it's quite hard to grasp. But then he talks about it in an individual, personal way for you and for me. And at the end of, end of chapter 2, that's what it says. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we're God's masterpiece. Isn't that a great term? You and me, we're God's masterpiece. He's created us and you in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So we can do the good things he planned for you and he planned for me long ago. The individual personal nature of that plan. And another bit too about that plan is God's invitation for us to participate in that as part of the church as part of the church being the rescue plan for everybody else who doesn't know, yet know about it. In chapter 3, that, it's what it says. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's just a quick run-through, a quick summary of those different elements of plan. And I hope just, just hearing them articulated like that, the big overarching plan, the personal plan, the plan to unite everybody in the world, the plan for the church to be the, the answer to, to everything, to all the problems and situations, and the invitation for us to be part of that. That's an encouraging message, if ever I've heard one. And that's, that's the knowledge part, I suppose. I said the first half, we find out about, what, about our knowledge of God, what we believe, what He has done, I guess. And then comes our response. Quite often, in, in, uh, whenever we read in the Bible, if it says the word therefore, it usually means we've got to do something. It usually means something's gone before, then it says therefore, and you know, ah, there's going to come a part for me. So let me read, <clears throat> therefore is the first word in, in chapter 4. Let me just read a, a little bit of this uh, part of our response, if you like. So we'll read the first um, two verses of, of chapter 4, then we'll skip down to 25 and read through to verse 5 of chapter 5. Here we go. Therefore, I, that's Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. That's what they're there for is for. He's told us all about the plan. He's reminded everybody of the beliefs. And he's saying, I beg you to lead a life worthy of all of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And down to verse 25. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we're all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting your anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work, 
and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, he's identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you're his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your inspiration to Paul all those years ago to write what has been what we have read. And we pray that today you would bring those words alive for us. That by your spirit in each of us individually and as a collective body here today, that we would know what it is that you're saying to us. That we'd be enthused by the fact that there's always something more that you want to reveal to us. There's always another way that you want to use us. So may we be open to your prompting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so there is, there's plenty of practical advice there, isn't there, about what our response ought to be and therefore our, how we ought to behave just in the course of everyday life, in our relationships at home, in work, with neighbors, whatever it happens to be. Lots of really practical advice. But I think what's more important is what's, what's our motivation for that response? What, what is it that's kind of behind it, pushing it along? I don't know if you picked it up, but let me read those first couple of verses in chapter 5 again, because I think that's where the answer is. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you're his dear children. Live a life filled with love. Live a life filled with love. Following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Two bits to that. Imitate God. So we know earlier on in, in the letter we've been told we've been adopted into his family. He's our father. He's our dad. So we imitate him. That's what children do, isn't it? As kids run around, uh, you can see they're doing things that their parents do as well. And that's the encouragement there is to imitate our father. And the, more we, the more knowledge we have of him, the more we see of how he is and how he acts and what his character is, the more we can imitate that in our lives. But even added on to that, it says, follow Jesus' example. Within the scripture, we have so much there of what Jesus actually did, 
whenever he was here on earth. That phrase is tremendous. Those six words, live a life filled with love. Live a life filled with love. Wouldn't that be great if that was how people described us? Yeah, he lives a life filled with love. He lives a life filled with love. We know that God loved us, and that theme goes through Ephesians as well. In the first chapter, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. And there's many other references to that love, that motivation that God had. Because we read that God is love. God is love. We're not. We're kind of on a journey to it. I can't say that I am love. I can say that I'm trying, and there's bits of me that are probably more loving than others, but God, because he is perfect and is pure and is holy and is completely beyond our understanding, he is love. And it's us trying to understand some of those attributes and see how do they work out in our lives. So that's, that's our motivation. We don't do things because the rule says that we ought to do it. We don't do things because we're scared of the consequences of it. We don't do things uh, because we're expecting something in return. We do these things because it's a response to a loving God. We do these things because we're following Jesus' example of practical, everyday love. See, love does stuff. It's, It's not just a feeling. Love is an action. Love does things. I continue to grow my understanding of love in the way Jesus spoke of it and how he lived it out. As I say, it's so much more than just a feeling. It, it does stuff. And if any of you are, are parents, you know what that means. Love does things. Love at an early age is changes nappies. That's the motivation. Love does the dishes. Love gets up in the middle of the night. Love is patient. Love does stuff. Now it's easy, it's easy to, from our perspective on Jesus' life to miss just how radical his teaching on love actually was back in those times. I don't know if you remember a stage when the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus around what's most important commandment. There's a, a while where different groups of the religious leaders were really trying to get him into trouble and, and asking him uh, questions. And <clears throat> there was one time when the Pharisees said, well, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? They weren't particularly interested in the answer. They were really trying to trap him. And remember, in the law of Moses, there were probably about 600 commands and rules. If you go back and have a wade through Leviticus and so on, you you can find a whole lot of them. But here's what Jesus said. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, 600 plus commands, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on those two commands. Now, because we weren't there, I don't think we can grasp just how incredible that was. That was like throwing a hand grenade into the middle of something. Up until then, the Jewish religion, if you like, was, was based on, on so much on that law. And Jesus is saying, he's summarizing all of it in two, 
And the word love is there, isn't it? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the two, the two sides. So loving God actually means you do something. It actually means there's action. Something happens as a result of your loving God. It's not just that vertical relationship. It comes out and it makes a difference in all the relationships that you have. Loving God means loving others. Loving God means loving your neighbor. And Jesus wasn't finished there. <clears throat> Sometime later, somebody must have heard him because they repeated this command to him. He said, I know, I know that the important thing is to love God and, and love your neighbor. But his question then was, and who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And in Jewish culture, neighbor meant Jew. That, that's who the neighbor was. That loving your neighbor was quoted from either Deuteronomy or Leviticus, I'm not sure which, but the context there was, was a fellow Jew. And do you remember how Jesus answered that question? What was the parable that he told? The Good Samaritan. Again, that was a hand grenade. The Samaritans were sworn enemies of the Jewish people. So he was saying it's not, it's not just the Jew that lives beside you. This is for everybody now. The definition of neighbor is now limitless. Loving your neighbor was evidence of loving God. It was about showing mercy. That's, that was what the answer was. He said, and who was the neighbor in that story? And it, I'm sure there was silence for a long time. And, and as we read, the people couldn't even bring themselves to say it was the Samaritan. They said it was the one who showed mercy. That's the new definition. And Jesus says, okay, go you and do likewise. And on the last night Jesus had with his disciples, he elaborated even further on this teaching of the activity of love, the action of love. In John 13, he says to them, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Another one. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. So he was he was telling them how to do it as well. Love each other just as I have loved you. Remember what he'd just done? he just washed their feet. Just as I have loved you, you love each other. And then, as if that wasn't enough, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. So that, again, that must have blown their minds. So yes, he just washed their feet. And washing, washing the feet in those days was a pretty dirty job. But also, I'm sure those disciples sat there and were thinking, how did God love, how has God loved me? How has Jesus loved me, sorry, as I've been with him? Peter will have thought, oh, there's so many times I put my foot in it. Jesus didn't judge me. Jesus didn't forsake me. Jesus didn't, he just listened to me. He was patient with me. And all of them will have had those individual thoughts because Jesus did something. His love was action. So in talking to them, he gave a command, and that command is, is for us to love each other, just as I have loved you. And he says how to do it. He gives evidence of how to go about it. It's not some theoretical thing. Do it the way I did, he said. And then he said, this, this is your defining mark. This is how people are going to know about me, the way that you love, the way that you love one another. 
that phrase again, living a life filled with love. And all of this was even before Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate act of love where he died such a horrific death. That was, that was even before that. Jesus had truly embodied and communicated something radical, something new whenever he lived here on earth. It was something much less complicated than what had gone before. They were just, it was reduced down to love God and love people, love others the way that I've loved you. But my goodness, it was more costly. It's very easy to have a rule book and tick them off and, and I'll be okay because I've, I've kept all of those. This was now all-encompassing. This was life. This was all about all of life. That's why the word sacrifice and sacrificial appears so often. And that's the life filled with love that we read about. Back to that verse in um, Ephesians chapter 5. That's the context. That's the motivation. It's not some nice sort of warm, fuzzy feeling. That's what love is about. That's what Jesus example was. And so that's to be our motivation then behind our individual daily responses. So we have this knowledge of God which we're growing in. We have a belief in who he is and what he's done. And then our response is, how, how do we live out that life filled with love following the example of Christ? So a great question for us, I guess, to continually have as we go through the, the routine of life is, what, what does love require of me here? As I go into work tomorrow, what, what does love require of me here? How am I going to follow Jesus' example? What Ken was saying at the start was brilliant. You know, some people just, they use their own free time to talk to you and other people free up their time. That's a great example of what we're talking about here. What does love require of me? I have to be other people focused, not me focused. So those bits of advice that we read earlier, do you remember those regarding our response to our knowledge of God? They all answer that question, what does love require of me? Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Be patient, be gentle, forgiving. Stop telling lies. We don't stop telling lies because there's some rule that says don't tell lies. That's not a life filled of love. That's not Jesus' example. We're wanting to follow him. And there's a, there's a subtle difference there, isn't there? Maybe it's not even so subtle. Just having a rule that says don't lie, that's, that seems fairly transactional. If I don't do that, probably something good might happen to me. But this is based on relationship. Jesus wants us to live out that life of love. So is lying going to be a good thing to do in that? No, I would suggest it's not. Stealing as well. <clears throat> if you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to those who are in need. So there's an encouragement there based on that motivation of love. There's things that we're better not doing because it doesn't fulfill that calling. And equally, there's things that are better to do because it does fulfill that calling. And this, this perspective is also a pretty compelling witness, isn't it? And I, I suppose we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said it would be, didn't he? 
You'll, they'll know you, you um, love me if you're loving each other. But think about it. Um, we live in a completely post-Christian society, don't we? And I'm, I'm thinking about this particularly as my eldest son, Tom, is 16. He's, he's not quite left home, but he's, not, he's getting close to it. And I'm thinking, how is he prepared to go into the world of, of work or university or whatever? And if somebody does something and he just says, you, you shouldn't do that because the Bible says you shouldn't do it. Well, most people don't really hold any authority in the Bible. Most people probably haven't even read it. What's more compelling is to say, Jesus' life of love, this is the life, I want to live this life of love, and, and this is the way that I see and I understand to do that. So, it's, so, so take lying. It's, it's not about breaking a rule because the Bible says so and getting your, your knuckles wrapped, and, and somehow in all of that you can feel holier than now, can't you? But living a life filled with love is about truth. It's about seeing others as God sees them. It's about treating others the way that I read that Jesus treated them. He treated them with honor and with respect. He valued people that other people in that day did not value at all. It was so much more about relationships than about rules. So that perspective, I think, is a much more compelling witness. It's a much, it's a much truer um, showing of what it is that we believe, isn't it? We are wanting to live a life filled with love. We are wanting to communicate that love. And it's through that love that other people will see that, yes, there are bits in their life that actually, if I want to live that life of love because Jesus is alive in me, you're right, I shouldn't be doing that. And I should be doing this. So it's by our choice to love others that God's love grows in us. Grows in us and flows through us. That's the choice that we've got, isn't it? It's his love that makes a difference to other people. It's not mine. It's the degree with which I allow him to work through me. So I guess our choice is simple. It's just how much do we want that to occur? How much in each day do we want that knowledge to come out in action for God to use us as a conduit of that love. I've been challenged recently, a little phrase that I really sensed that God gave to me was, <clears throat> give more of myself and give of myself more. Give more of myself. Again, exactly what Ken was saying with that, listening and talking to people. And give of myself more. There's more opportunities to do it. Having eyes open to see, where is it that this life filled with love can come out? Where is it that that can happen? And I was really encouraged just, and with this I finish, I was really encouraged on Friday. I met a chap, <clears throat> an ex-colleague of mine, I haven't seen him for a couple of years, but he, he used, to work, uh, used to work with us and he went through a really tough time and he ended up leaving because he, he wanted to have a job that was less pressure. But he had a marriage breakup, he, had, um, he was having challenges, meeting with his little boy. He was just lots of things was going wrong in his life. And I sp spent time with him, prompted by God to give of my time. I don't know how many times we walked along that little cycle track um, uh, down towards Granton and so on, but just listening really. And then just as he left, I felt God say to me to give him a book and I, 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 there was a book that I thought would be really appropriate for him and I gave it to him and 
I didn't see him again until Friday night. Friday night he came and he said to me, he, he, he wouldn't let go of my hand, he was just shaking my hand. He said, that book that you gave me, that changed my life. That changed my life. And as I walked home that night, I was, I was thankful to God because that, that's what we're talking about. It wasn't, it wasn't me, it was God working through me. It was just me saying, I'm here. I'm here to be inconvenienced. I'm here to be used. I'm here to, to endeavor to grow in my ability of having a life filled with love. And the sense of, of being used, there's nothing better of knowing that God is working in you and through you, using you as part of that rescue plan, using us in those different scenarios. And we've all got so many of those opportunities, and I know I miss them every day probably. So just continually asking and growing in our, in our ability to discern where is it that God wants to use that life filled with love that he wants to give us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for we thank you for just the incredible example that we have to follow of you as our all-loving Heavenly Father and of the life of Jesus that we read of in your word. Thank you that there's always more that you want to do in us and through us. Thank you for your individual love for each of us. Thank you for your individual calling. Thank you for where you've placed each of us. And thank you for your desire to use us in those places. And we pray, we pray as we go into another week for that growing discernment and enthusiasm and excitement about being used of you in that way. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.